Greetings ladies and metal gents and welcome to this narration of the web series Survivor Becomes a Dungeon, taken from Royal Road. If you are new to the series, there is a playlist listed down below. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Chapter 23 Basti Point of View Weak. They're all so damn weak. Will nobody stand in my way? She bellowed a roar as she slashed at the air. A wave of shadows darker than darkness itself cutting through the air as it shattered another wave of bone. The danger was overstated. Though the horde of skeletons soon became an indistinguishable mass of bones, the creaking, clattering cacophony of calcium crashing around the caverns full Basti's ears. But it didn't matter to her. The bones bounced harmlessly against the cowl of the shadows that oozed off of her with her stride. While she was not getting tired, she was getting annoyed. Smashing everything was not working fast enough. She also wasn't getting any more mana after destroying a few undead despite how many skulls of the skeletons that had been crushed beneath her formidable paws and claws. Masty slowed to a stop. Standing in the center of the cavernous room, she took a moment to examine the situation. Though, as she stood there, all the scattered bones began clattering and shifting. The sea of off-white being swept away and tossed into the air. The world's worst army of thundering xylophones violating her ears as she got into a defensive stance. In moments, she found herself in the eye of a maelstrom of calcium. Her eyes darted side to side as she tried to find an opening. Suddenly, she noticed a gleam of purple at all the white, and she knew that she had found what she was looking. You're mine, she roared out, over the deafening rattling echoing in her ears. She crouched low, body shifting and morphing back down to her previous smaller, sleek build. However, the vicious shadows did not leave her yet as they trailed up her back and shoulders, unfurling into a pair of ebony wings that dipped with contempt as she charged forward. Taking up into the air, she hopped, lunged, and pounced over the stall of bones with ease she's never known. In the next instant, she snatched the skull out of the storm, its gleaming purple eyes staring blankly ahead as Basti cracked it with the teeth. But it still did not shatter. The bones stopped dead in the air after rattling the final notes of their chorus as they crashed down to the ground in defeat. With a flap of her wings of shadow, she descends with a natural grace, touching down with a slow walk as she holds the skull with one controlling its room. With a deep breath, her wings melted into nothingness as she processed her share of the manner it let off. And in doing so, she absorbed a flash of its memories, getting to reflect on its final moments. Though she couldn't help but feel confused, in its final moments all she could tell was that it was grateful to her. But Maury, point of view. Those memories I got from the skull were so odd, in that they were only two notable things in recent memory. First was seeing the teens Isak and Trisha, and then next was the fight with Basti. But for as anything beyond that, nothing. Nothing but the empty darkness of waiting for the stimulus of all a stretch of time I couldn't quite comprehend. Regardless, the second room has been cleared for the moment, and after removing all the bones, the chamber was totally empty. For now, 
We'll keep an eye on things. If the room repopulates, I'll have to devise some countermeasures. If they don't, I'll be sending in a scouting team further inside to probe the other dangers within. In other news, Basti has some new tricks. I couldn't watch the fight myself once she passed some kind of threshold, but I caught the lasting impressions from the memories of the skull that commanded the room. I'm consistently blown away by her growth and in awe of how she rises to every challenge I put before her. It's moments like this that I am thankful she wandered into my worthless pebble's life. For her accomplishment, I decided that she could freely determine what should be done with the manor she gathered today. Even as Basti sat reverently before my core, she couldn't help but cast an anxious glance back at her cubs, who were once again watching the outside with eagerness. In the end, she respectfully requests the manor be divided amongst her cubs so that they be more able to defend themselves in case anything were to happen. I couldn't fault her concern. After all, it kept me alive through the worst situations in my old life. I called the cubs over, the four bumbling over each other with eagerness. They're so adorable as they do their very best to mimic their mother while sitting at attention. However, the red-furred and blue-furred cubs in particular couldn't sit still to save their lives as they fidgeted in anticipation. Now, boys and girls, your mama has worked hard to keep us safe. Now. It's time for you to start in your path of development. With this gift of manner, you'll be able to start heading outside. So make sure that you're all on your best behavior. Despite my warning, I can't help but let my amusement and adoration for these feline munchkins show in my voice. The cubs, in response, are all now fidgeting and murring with enthusiasm as the anticipation of finally getting to go out just hit them like a bolt of lightning. Even Basti couldn't help but chuff with approval and amusement at their energy. The manner I gotten from that one skull gave me a ring of manner swirling around within my core. Now, I managed to portion it out amongst the cubs, slowly filling their bodies with manner as I watched it fill them and course through their veins like blood. Soon enough, it gathered and ignited their manner hearts taking the faint glimmers that were there before and giving them each a vibrant little flame that glowed with the energy of their youth. Now, what was once an energetic bundle of clubs became a sleepy cuddle pile as their bodies worked hard to adjust to the influx of mana. Basti came over to affectionately nose each of them before carrying them off to sleeping area and lying with them as they got ready to grow up. End of chapter. Chapter 24. Unknown point of view. I awake to the sounds of screams, disoriented and confused. I'm not sure if what I'm hearing is my imagination or reality, as those tend to blur in my weakest moments. It was in the next moment before I could consider sitting up that a spray of lead tore through the sheet metal wall above me, and the next moment I rolled off the bunk in the sleeping area. I was allowed to borrow from the contractors. Beck! I knew I should have stayed dressed last night. I reach up and grab my sidearm and knife from under my pillow. I'm only wearing a decently hand-stitched pair of black cotton pajama pants, and I'm still cursing myself for it. The screams and cries of battle still sound out, and I have to shake my head to clear the distractions. Now is not the time to whine. Get off your ass! Crawling forward, 
I push onto my knees and peek out the shack's window. This farming community I've been staying in for the last couple weeks is burning. A truck has reversed hard into the fortified gates, driving a wedge between us and the outside. From here, I can only see three aggressors, but more's fighting elsewhere. My breathing quickens, and I mash my fist against my chest to trick the adrenaline rush. Feeding awake enough and wired to put my life on the line, I rush outside into the crisp evening air. Molotovs usually scorched against the mostly metal structures, though a greenhouse is already lost. My bare feet kick up dirt, and I step over a person who was proudly showing off carrots to me three days ago. Ducking around a corner and running up to the edge of the wall, my back is flush against the cold, corrugated metal of a storehouse. The fighting is still going, the other survivors doing their best to hold back and drive off the bandits. I hear the chuckling and rummaging in the storehouse. These bastards aren't even waiting to start their looting. My knuckles go white as I clench the grip my blade. Crouching lower, I launch forward and slip through the careless, toss-open doorway. I don't even take time to look out over the beast before me. My foot met the back of his knee as he crumples with a yelp. However, I don't allow him to fall to the ground, following up as I plunge my blade hard into the side of his neck. He's not dead yet, though, as I use the blade as a point of leverage. My gun arm hooked around his forehead before quickly twisting and releasing him at the declaration of a sickening crunch. His glazed eyes look up at me while the rest of him lays fat on his stomach. My body is coated with a fresh splash of warmth, though I know it won't stay that way for long as I head out to the fray again. I vault over some crates and make a beeline towards where I hear most of the combat. Nearly tripping over someone's son, I just finished giving him advice on his rifle last week. Foolishly, I let my focus tunnel as I crash into another band. We fall to the ground, wrestling with one another before I roll them into a pin as I twist their arm behind their back. However, this one I recognized and I hear the blood pounding in my ears as I remember her face. You! You bitch! What are you doing here? Her eyes widened in terror. She had seen what I could do. After all, I saved her ass, along with two of her friends, from a small swarm. It is now that I realize this attack was my fault. They knew we were here because I let the guy I was escorting allow them to tag along to stock up on supplies. She immediately starts sputtering, panicking. And she shakes her head. It's not my fault. They, they made me do it. I, I didn't want to be come back here. I swear. I narrow my gaze at her. Though, the moment I'm distracted by the continuous fighting around, her free arm shoots out to grab my fallen gun. I wrench her shoulder out of its socket as she screams out. Don't bother. Your words are meaningless. I don't waste time on her, pushing her away, as I scoop up my pistol, even as she tries to crawl away. I fire off a single round and finish her, barely sparing a glance to make sure my aim is on point. I scoop up my blade and keep moving forward, finally finding the near the front of the gate as I come up behind the aggressors. They've got the other survivors pinned inside the mess hall, and thankfully, they seem to have managed to get a scrap of metal tables barricaded up against the main entrance. The bandits are unwilling to get closer, mainly because they don't have the straightforward way to get inside. They are taking pot shots from behind the cover of a tractor and some empty crates meant to be used as delivery for vegetables next week. 
Bodies are scattered between where I stand at the mess hall. Luckily, I don't recognize most of them as I close in on the remaining four bands. A shot rings out, and there are just three left. Moving forward with a brutal efficiency, I step out and start strafing from right to the next piece of cover as I bury around at a woman's back before following up with a shot to the back of her head before she can realize that she was already dead. I quickly dive into some tall grass, the sturdy plants scratching against my bare skin. The man next to her panics at how she suddenly went out, recoiling as she crumpled into a heap, and taking a step out from cover as one of the other survivors took advantage, the report of a rifle dooming the bastard. The last guy seems to realize he is alone, and he looks at me as I rush out of the grass. Dropping his shotgun, he attempts to hold up his hands, blubbering for surrender. However, I didn't hear his words, as I spotted an older woman who had such innovative ideas and taught me a new recipe for napalm. I ended his blubbering and wasted two more rounds because I needed it. The silence was deaf, as I could feel my heart pounding in my ears. Absently, I tried to wipe the blood off my face only smearing it some more as I whistle out of the all clear. Come on, guys. Everyone, we got fires to put out, and we need to get ready for the roamers who doubtlessly heard the shit. Jack's point of view the next day. Oh, I sees it's a field trip day, hmm? Jack called out in amusement as he flitted down to land on Basti's back. Basti huffs in a vague annoyance at Jack's arrival and half-heartedly swipes at him with a tail. Jack barely takes a half a step to avoid the tail as he whistles a laugh. The cubs are no longer cubs, they're adolescent elemental prowlers or teens, as it were. The four look around with more attention and awareness, flashing feline smiles as they seem to murr and chatter to each other. Jack snickers as he eavesdrops on them. Yeah, milk and honey just fall straight out of the sky. Crazy, I know, he teased mischievously. The blue-furred teen cat looked very much like she believed what Jack just told her, but the black-furred teen cat just nudged her and shook his head, much to Jack's delight. Jack continued as he fluttered his wings for no apparent reason. You'll get to see what trees look like from the bottom soon enough, and you know what? I'll even get some fruits for y'all to try out, that you'll all get to eat some real food. He enthused, being kinder now that he's had some fun. At that, the red-furred teen cat did excited little tappy-taps with her paws while they walked, seeming especially eager about the idea of food out of everyone here. The white-furred teen cat chuffed in response to his eagerness. The black-furred teen cat hung near the back of the group. He's still eager to be out with this new, more mature and grown-up mental capacity. But to better appreciate the taste of what he got to see before all the others, he decided to take his time and walk mostly at his own pace. Jack spoke up once again as they descended the mountain. So, uh, where are you going first? Basti hummed in thought before letting out a low roll in response. But that's so boring! Take them to haven of people. You need them to interact with the people or they're going to be unsociable weirdos to the people they're meant to protect. Jack chastised with uncharacteristic seriousness, pecking at Basti's ear to admonish her first choice. Basti was somewhat stunned by Jack's sensibility, merely flicked her ear instead of trying to swipe at him for what he did. 
After another moment, she gave a meow of consideration before relenting to what Jack suggested. Zassita, point of view. Zassita was enjoying his breakfast. Today was some forest fruits, along with some new fruits that Org had told the foragers about. The fruits, in general, had been gently roasted over the fire and served on some boiled wild grains. He scooped up some of the meal out of the bowl with a hand-carved wooden spoon, just savoring the filling meal quietly, until Cinco sat beside him with his bowl. Morning, Shepherd, Cinco said pleasantly, tucking into his meal. If you don't mind me asking, why well, I've been noticing that you head up the mountain a couple of days in a row now. Is there something happening? He asked, being unabashedly inquisitive. Zassiter tilted his head a bit before flashing his pearly white teeth with a smile. I've had the honor to train with one of Atmori's warriors. So far I've used a sword and a shield and a mace. We're supposed to return the sword again before drying out spears. He explained animatedly, clearly excited about what he's been up to. Cinco, while initially concerned, now seemed relieved, and even delighted by how cheerful the shepherd was. I uh, see. That sounds like uh, quite an experience, the rambikin said pleasantly with a nod. Zazita was about to go on and talk about dread, but was interrupted by a hand on his shoulder as he looked over to see Xanatal. The lizardkin guardswoman flashed her fangs in a smile. You've been carrying yourself more confidently, shepherd. If you're interested, perhaps we could spar together and see how you're coming along. She offered, her hand still on his shoulder. Now, Zassita was undoubtedly a very old man. Looking up at Xanatul, he seemed to realize just how beautiful she is. And he also became very aware of his own practically perfect body, as he could feel his heart thumping in his chest. Ah! Yes, yes, uh, I think I'd quite like that. Uh, thank you. Xanatus smiled a little wider, gently rubbing Zassiter's shoulder once before patting it as she pulled away. Her tail swayed more noticeably with each step as she got her food and went elsewhere in the camp. Cinco smirked like a fool as he watched the range of expressions flash across Zassiter's face. Almost moments after Xanatul was out of sight, Vertisa walked up, clutching her pack in her chest as a form of support, and spoke up. Hi, Shepard. Uh, so, so sorry to bother you, but uh, I, uh, I was wondering if... Um... But she didn't get to finish stammering through her request when a young shriek pierced the morning calm of the camp. The fighters got to their feet in response, looking around for the danger. They'd then see little Org running as fast as the little legs can take her from the eating area as she shrieks out again, Kitties! End of chapter. Chapter 25. Jack, point of view. The expressions on the people's faces were just priceless for Jack, and it was all thanks to Gurley. He was perched in a tree nearby as Basti and her cubs strolled into the camp. Basti, for one, greeted Org as the girl approached, the little girl coming up and hugging the adult prowler's neck before approaching the cubs. The black-furred cub was more privy to the situation as he slinked off around the other side of Basti. Whereas the little girl just stupefied the other three cubs, the three continuously looked over at Basti worriedly as they were handled in a way they'd never been before. 
After a bit, the rest of the group started meandering over, mainly to watch the situation. However, the kids of the group approached, thanks to Org, diffusing any tension that might have been there. Zasada stood, pushing up from the seated position, with his hands on his knees before glancing at Vertissa. Let's talk later, he offered, wanting to make sure that she wasn't ignored before walking over to Basti with a smile on his face. Good morning, Executioner Beast. Thank you for visiting us. What brings you here? He asked, curiously. Basti chatted and murred in response, carrying a conversation in her untranslated tongue. Zassita nodded in response as if they were perfectly understood, throwing a few side words in confirmation of, Oh, really? And things like that before looking at the others. She's come to socialize her kids and is seeking permission to allow them to wander our camp and interact with us. The rest of the group looked at each other, curiously, unsure what to make of the situation. However, that's when Jack decided to speak up. Come on then, they're just kids. Let them get to know you. They'll be the ones guarding you on the days go on. The members of the camp closest to the tree he was perched on had certainly jumped with surprise. However, they looked at the cubs over with a new appreciation. It wasn't long until murmurs turned into sounds of agreement as they began dispersing. Zassida turned to look at Basti with a smile as he nodded. Our home is open to you and your family, Basti. Feel free to come and go as you like. Basti in turn murs with a nod as she looked to her kids, which were in the form of bliss as they were pet and doted on in the way that they'd never experienced. The blackbird cub was admittedly standoffish about it and slinked into his mother's shadow for the time being. However, the white-furred club was into it, being the most socially adept and managing to wrangle the most throat scratches from the kids. Even some of the adults came over, watching the cubs and Basti with understanding that these were potentially powerful beasts. But even they couldn't resist how cute they were. Though even as Jack watched over the situation from his perch, he got the feeling that someone was watching him. Looking around, he spotted the dwarf woman anxiously shifting side to side, not exactly sure of herself. With his attention sufficiently grabbed, he flitted over and landed on the ground before her. Yes? Do you need something? Sylvia smiled a bit as she nodded. I... I realized I did not properly thank you for saving my daughter. I meant it. Thank you. I understand you've only been what you are for less than a week. Yet, you already have more compassion than most people. Jack's feathers floofed up, certainly not accustomed to such praise and attention as he averted his gaze. Uh, yeah, well, uh, there was a kid in trouble. Uh, what kind of bastard would ignore that? Sylvia smiled as she got down on her knees and gently patted Jack's head. Currently, he was too flustered to be annoyed. At this, he could also feel the ground tremble slightly beneath his claws turning, twisting slightly, just in time to see Org rush up to him. Jackie! She climbed out in enthusiasm as she scooped up the bird, much to his surprise, and Sylvia chuckled at the view. Jack was uncomfortable, but he didn't fight it. His wings unfurled in the imitation of a hug as he flapped his left wing to mimic patting her shoulder. 
All right, all right, girlie. That's enough. Check me down now. Thankfully, Org didn't insist on hugging him for too long. Jack flitted away onto the ground again and ruffled his feathers. Ah, we have something for you, Sylvia said a little nervously, her hands fiddling together in an uncharacteristic amount of shyness for a usually confident and stalwart woman. Though it seems Org was happy to pick up the slack. We made you a bananananan, she gushed. Sylvia smiling some more as she watched her daughter open up more. The usually shy little girl was spoken more in the past several days than in the rest of her life so far. Jack was confused, looking to Sylvia for clarification, which she was happy to offer. It's a simple thing, really, but Org really helped out in making it. It's a bandana, she explained as she pulled out a piece of canvas that had been dyed red. We didn't have much to make it unique, but we did manage to find some natural dye. The red comes from beetroot, she explained as she smiled a little more. We figured you might like it more than if it smelled like the forest. Oh, we heard from Zassiter that vassals like yourself have a potential to grow even more. So we made sure that it was big enough and just folded a little extra material into a neat hem, she explained as she offered the bandana to Jack to see. He was, well, he was speechless. He never received a gift before. Leaning in, he smelled the bandana curiously. It smelled sweet and earthly, and something else mixed in there too. He let out a low whistle of approval and added, I, uh, I love it, thank you, he said softly as he stepped closer. Sylvia carefully tying it around his neck with a strong knot. It felt weighty, but also comforting in a way. Jackie looks so cool. Org chirped as she walked around Jack, appraising him from every angle. Jack was getting incredibly flustered at this rate as he flattered his wings. Well, it was nice seeing ya. Good that you're looking better, kiddo. He commented with a nod. He was fidgeting some more before deciding to give his wings a flap. I should go. I've got my duties. After all, I was just making sure these cats got here all right, he explained, giving himself an out as Sylvia smiled at him. All right, Captain Jack, see you around, she said gently as she stood back up onto her feet. Hi, Jackie. She waved enthusiastically as she went back to her mop side. With his way out sufficiently established, he flitted off as fast as he could to try and collect himself after all that attention. End of chapter. Chapter 26. With Maury, point of view. It looks like things are going smoothly for Basti and her kids. From what I can see, Org and the kids have managed to set up a giant game of hide-and-seek around the camp, though some of the adults had to join in to make sure none of the kids went too far out. In the meantime, Zassita and Basti worked together to contribute their excess mana to my work as I finally managed to finish up the longhouse. It didn't take too much since I was just finishing up the roofing and the flooring. Though, I continued to work on the interior, really dedicating all the extra stone and wood I had left to the details. Inside the longhouse it was quite a simple but effective setup. A third of the floor space was dedicated to communal sleeping quarters, with a simple barrack-style design for men and women on opposing sides of the longhouse. 
next to the dedicated area for cooking, I had gone ahead and built an interior stone firepit. I was using some of my stalls of purified iron to make a spit rack, which could also hang stew pot over an open flame. I also prepared a raised iron skillet, which could have been slotted into the fire pit brick to allow a variety of cooking. Finally, I prepared a brick oven, the chimney going smoothly up and out of the longhouse. With all this, I hope they'll be able to expand the variety of meals that they can prepare and improve overall morale with the rising quality. Finally, was the communal dining area. It was a simple arrangement of the tables and along benches on the long sides of each table. By the end, Zaceta looked somewhat winded, and Basti was slinking off to have a nap somewhere. Zaceta, how do you feel? Think you're up for some more planning? I asked, reaching out to him somewhat softer to not bother him too much. <laughs> I'm feeling all right, but Mori. I'm thankful to you for looking out for me. Zaceta thought back as he curiously looked around the longhouse, admiring the strange style of architecture and the facilities themselves. Good to hear. Zaceta, since we still have plenty more to discuss, you'll probably need to discuss with the others what you all need, I explained, my mind swirling with ideas of defense, fortified walls, watchtowers, and facilities like a workshop. They probably don't need an exercise area, considering how lacking they are in surplus. Any electrical wiring and lighting is not required yet either. I'm still not too sure about the average technology level for the typical person, and I'd rather not paint a target on their back with something too eye-catching. No need for a garage either, since they use carriages. It's also limiting to what I consider worthwhile. Hence, my need to perspective of someone from here. Zacita who already looked worn out, was now looking strained as he held his head in both hands, grunting under the weight of some of the concepts coming from me. Oh, great one. I appreciate the concern, but could you think a little slower? You started to lose me after you started to think about lightning magics being used to make light. Oh, crap. I'm hurting him somehow. My bad. Uh, sorry about that. I say apologetically, as I do my best to wrangle my runaway ideas. Zacitus smiles to himself as he checks out the interior firebird. It's fine, but Mori, I appreciate the amount of forethought you've put into this. I couldn't help but be impressed with how patiently Zacitus carries himself, a small smile forming on my non-existent face. Of course, a lot goes into a haven and you all get an advantage of having someone like me to even move all the supplies. Just know this, I'm letting you decide what you need next. Should we build the fortified stone walls around what we plan to be the rest of Haven, or should we build up some more independent and private housing? We could also set up something like an apartment building so everyone can have a form of privacy. Or do we build up some other facilities, like a forge or a workshop, things like that. Zaciter massaged the sides of his head a little more at the influx of info and nodded a bit. I see. Well, I'll certainly bring this up with the others around the dinner tonight. And we should have an answer for you tomorrow. Even as Zaciter spoke, the others began meandering into the longhouse, admiring their new, if not temporary, home. The kids seemed to run inside excitedly as they look around, soon followed by the cubs who seem to appreciate how much of my manner is in the structure and the air. The one that seems the most impressed were Remy and Luna Moon, the wolfkin woman. 
Tears were in her eyes, her fur notably damp along her cheeks as she shook Remy's shoulder. Look at that! Over there! Is that an oven? She gushed, her tail swishing actively as she wandered back and forth between the fire pit and the brick oven. Remy couldn't help but smile at the woman's enthusiasm. He was rather excited to have proper facilities now. The limitations of a fire pit and a pot were getting to him. He heard clawing feet clacking up from behind him and glanced over to see the shepherd. Good day, shepherd. The longhouse looks amazing, he expressed cheerfully. Zazadan nodded sagely as he patted Remy's shoulder before looking at Luna as well. I am glad you like it. Vidmoria has expressed to me that you two are the most important people in Haven, as food will be vital to keep our spirits and bodies strong. He explained as he pulled his hand away. At that revelation, Remy and Luna glanced at each other, standing a little bit taller and bowing their heads slightly. We understand, Shepard. We'll continue to do our best. With that, they stepped away to start preparing lunch, gathering the already collected logs of firewood to bring inside. Aruru, point of view. Another day, another set of worries. Aruru slithers out of the newly dug-out burrow within Vitmori's main chamber. The fine stone sand was always pleasant against these scales, though, soon enough, he found his place before Vidmori's pedestal. Coiling comfortably before Vidmori, he looked out to the triangular entryway as the sunlight flowed inside, adding a warm glow to the generally green-lit chamber. Now it's time to focus. I need to find an answer before I can bring this to Vidmori. He knows Vidmori hasn't given him much attention, though it's not like he needs it. Just grateful to no longer be lost to the simple drive of hunger and mindless starvation. But now he's got too much on his mind. He thinks too much and too hard. And it worries him. Coiling tighter into himself, he brings his tail up to his mouth and bites down, the pain driving a sense of focus into his worried mind. With it now calm, he begins to swirl his manner around the length of his body, starting from his heart down to the tip of his tail. But then he guides the manner into his mouth and back down to his heart again turning himself into one big manor ring as he closes his eyes and looks beyond himself. From within the safety of Vidmori's chamber, he can freely look around far faster than he could ever slither. His eyes wander as he checks in on the spider trees today. It was still there, writhing and squirming and slowly expanding as its web encompasses more trees. However, they're still far from the people or the mountain, so he looked elsewhere. He then looked over the putrid bog, it was an odd place that he could remember, even in the haze of hunger. A strange thing to be in a forest, but the more he looks at it, the murky, bubbling water looks unnatural, and it worries him. But it isn't doing much yet, so he turns his attention away. Finally, he looks down the mountain, where he failed to see trouble. It was so quiet there before, and he couldn't see the danger until it started calling attention to itself. He tried hard to look in again, Yet he was being blocked. There was a wall between him and the danger, and he hated it. The more he poked and prodded, the more he could feel whatever was behind it working to hold him back. Good! Waste your manner on me. I'll learn your secrets soon enough. That's when he felt eyes looking back at him, though he only hissed in contempt. That's right. I've got my eyes on you.
End of chapter. Chapter 27. Basti point of view. It was almost foolish to worry as much as she had. Oh, cubs are taking to the people, well, and seemed to be finding their niches already. Her runt was the only one in particular, worrying her since he wouldn't socialize much with the others. What he did, however, was pretty impressive. As Basti strolled around the haven, she occasionally spotted movement out of the corner of her eyes. If she couldn't sense where he was, and if she wasn't familiar with shadow magic, Basti probably wouldn't have spotted him. The runt was putting his newly developed body through its paces, zipping from shadow to shadow. He was swiping down flies and mosquitoes, recognizing them to be annoyances and threats. Occasionally, he even found a spider starting his little web and struck down a mouse he discovered in the f- with furious prejudice. Masty couldn't help but chuff with amusement as she watched from out of sight. Her runt may be a natural in stealth, but he had a long way to go. Checking in on her blue fur cub, she seemed to be intently pacing after the anxious lizard woman herbalist. Masty could agree that the woman had been a luring scent, not tasty, but the smell of herbs and nature was pleasing compared to everyone else. Bertissa point of view. Bertissa was certainly anxious right now, especially since the blue prowler had been following her for a little while now as she went around checking on the few folks with open wounds and other sorts of scrapes and injuries. The prowler would come close and frequently sniff her herb pouch, even gently pawing at it, which constantly startled Vitissa while she was grinding up poultice. The look of the blue prowler's eyes is what confused her. It almost looked like her true intelligence, how she would sniff each herb, swath of moss and mushroom, how the prowler's eyes would follow her hands as she plucked each ingredient to make a specific treatment for a different type wound. It unnerved her, but she wasn't sure why. However, she will admit that it was pleasant spending time with someone, even if it was a young beast who could quickly kill her. Basti, point of view. Leaving her blue fur club to her new friend, she strolls back around the longhouse and spots the red-furred cub hanging around the cooking area now. This was the most still she's ever seen her largest cub be. It was almost transfixed, watching the work of Remy and Luna as they got into prep. Remy, point of view. Look at that, Remy. Their kitty is keeping an eye on us. Luna mused as she carried over the skinned deer that Cinco bagged this morning. She took up the freshly sharpened cleaver and began the butchering. Remy chuckled softly in response as he worked off the stone cutting board they fashioned a couple of days ago and glanced over to the red prowler. Remy's ear twitched with realization as he noticed the Red Prowler was now watching him mince some mushrooms and roots. What was more interesting was that the red right paw had been moving up and down in the same rhythm as Remy's knife hand. Hey, what do you think you're doing there? He mused to the Prowler with a smile as he went back to chomping. He did other prep work, not noticing the Red Prowler scooting closer and cutting board and sniffing the ingredients acquisitively. The teen snatched up a tiny piece of mushroom and tuber, doing more little sniffs and tasting them. The red prowler quickly scoots back as Remy returns to some cuts of venison, a mixed herb paste and a pouch of black salt, which was technically an alchemical ingredient, but that served no purpose here outside of cooking. Remy was soon struggling a bit as he got to work on starting the fire. Since the other camp members accidentally snuffed out the old fire pit, 
before either he or Luna could save the coals and embers for this fire. Though, as he worked on getting some friction sparks, he was suddenly surprised by the red prowler as they suddenly blew a hot bolt of flame into the fire pit, the wood catching a lot faster than Remy was ready for as he jumped back. The red prowler's ears suddenly reared back as he surprised at Remy's sudden reaction, but Remy offered a smile as he held his hands up placatingly. Whoa, there, hey there, it's fine, I'm fine, I appreciate your help, little buddy. The red prowler hesitantly relaxed as he focused back on what Remy was doing. Basti, point of view. Basti couldn't help but smile as she stepped away, looking around for a final cub, as she strolled around the haven, watching as most people and families were disassembling their camping areas. They were turning most of the tent material over to Sylvia and Mirum to do what they saw fit, and bringing the bedding, pillows and blankets into the longhouse to start picking spaces to sleep tonight. After a while she came across a group of children sitting in a half-circle under the shade of a tree. A dogkin mother tells the kids some stories and even sings songs that they sing along with. Among the kids, she notices a white-furred daughter sitting with the children as she meows and yells along with the songs. Basti was rather impressed by the second sing-along. The cub was almost making the sound of words and emphasizing the cadence of the notes and music. Watching her daughter for a little longer, she turned away and found a place for herself in the shade of another tree and finally took a nap that she had been putting off. But Maury, point of view. I think I can stop worrying about the people in Haven for a bit. I've finally gotten them out of the elements. With the roof and walls between them and the outside, they should be able to sleep more cosily at night. I probably shouldn't have to worry about too many defenses so early on. While this world is perhaps dangerous, even I can tell that this is not a ruined wasteland like my home world. But that also doesn't mean I can relax. But at the same time, I also don't need to be over-vigilant. If the memories I've absorbed are correct, I've also got to start planning for winter since they've just entered this world's equivalent of a fall season. While I don't have the world map anywhere, I know that the Empire's territory is supposed to be warmer than the rest of the continent in the winter time. This probably means that we're on the southern hemisphere of this planet, and if I'm right, we're looking forward to a brutal winter. Hmm. Jack, come to me, I call out to him, needing his help with some of my plans. It isn't long before he flits in before my pedestal. It's only now that I noticed Uruu sitting there, just staring into the middle distance with all his tail in his mouth. Poor thing. I should show him some more attention. Look at how out of it he is. Eshvimori, what do you have for me? Jack asked as he settled down on the stones across from Uruu and looked up. Ah, there you are. Yeah, I needed a... What are you wearing? I noticed the bandana around his neck, curious as to where he got it. Oh, uh, this thing. It's nothing special, Vitmori. Just something the dwarf lady made because I shaved her kid. Don't mind it, he expressed dismissively with a flustered flutter of his wings. I could feel the thoughts racing in a flustered frenzy in his feathery head and chuckled to myself. I couldn't help but smile to myself in response. It looks good. Make sure to take care of it. I enthused to him warmly. Jack merely averted his gaze as his feathers puffed up a little. Anyways, I need you to go and take five of your birds to head east of us and see if you can find a village or a settlement. If you do, 
try to find a field for crops and steal as many plants and seeds as you can and bring them to me to see what this world has to offer in fall goods. Jack looks confused, and I can feel the gears whirring in his mind as he lets out a slow nod. Oh, I see. All right, Mori, we'll be back as soon as possible. Jack said resolutely as he bowed with one wing extended and the other in his chest before taking off. All right, now to hear back from Zazit at night. End of chapter. I would quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and Patreons. Casper Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barky, Lord Azrakal, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Dragzoon WRE, Holly's Sister, Arcadian. Thank you very much.